Welcome everybody to the fabulous 34th edition of the Metabilis 2 podcast, which as usual stars myself, Ben. And David. Excellent. All the way from the sunny northwest of the United States of America. Liquid sunshine. Liquid sunshine. (laughs) (laughs) That's what they call it. Yes. It's actually rain then. Mm, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And I think in celebration or preparing for the excitement of April, when we will have a new series of our favorite TV show, we were going to talk about companions. Yeah. And in a stunning reversal of the usual pattern, we weren't going to talk about female companions to start with. We were going to talk about male ones. Ah. Yeah. And in reference to what we feel could be a new male companion, which is Nardole. Yeah, the one and only. Played by the inimitable Matt Lucas. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, from out of Little Britain and everything else that he does with <laughs> David Walliams. Yep. <laughs> uh, well, I, just, I, I suppose in some ways, do we even know that Nardole is male? We don't really know whether he's male or not yet, do we? <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, well, he is yeah. uh, playing a non-human, right? Yeah, he's definitely an alien, and I think this is probably more complicated than we're able to cover on this podcast, but aliens may not have male and female sexes. They may have a whole different other kind of sexes. Right. Um, His alopecia, of course, which is a technical word for he has no hair on his body Mm -hmm. after a childhood accident, again, makes him kind of otherworldly looking. Those of you who were fans of shooting stars featuring Vic and Bob will, of course, remember Matt Lucas as George Dawes, Who's a baby? He's a baby. He's a baby. Um, he played a giant baby because he's <laughs> he's just kind of pink and shiny. So he has a kind of otherworldly note to him, which is interesting. And to a larger extent, he's an accidental companion. He hasn't really even had a debut story. I mean, he kind of a minor character in Husbands of River Song. Well, he's kind of a Mel. He's just like could have sort of come from nowhere. Yeah. I'm referring to Mel from Pea's Pottage. Um, yeah. But I, I'm almost thinking he's more like Jamie, where he's just kind of an, well, the, the showrunner. In this case, Stephen Moffat liked him. Peter Capaldi liked him. Right. And so he ingratiated himself in a good way. Yeah. And uh, Moffat kept writing in more and more stories more with Nardo. Yeah. Yeah. Though I think it hasn't Moffat just said in the latest Doctor Who magazine that basically all companions should be female, period. Full stop. Did he? Yeah, I think he did. I think I read that somewhere on the internet. I mean, I haven't got the new Doctor Who magazine yet because obviously Mm. I live in America where it's obviously delayed where it comes out. Yeah, I'm still waiting for Vorp Vorp to materialize in my mailbox. Where's my Vorp Vorp? (laughs) Have you seen the size of that thing? It's like a book. Oh, it's, it's massive. Oh, I can't wait till my Vorp Vorp turns up. Wow, I'm very, very excited by that. Um, so hang on, so is, is is that what happened with Jamie as well? Jamie ingratiated well, himself with Innis Lloyd? Or yeah, Innis, well, he running was... Running the show at that, that point? He certainly wasn't uh, slated to be a companion, but uh, okay. Innis Lloyd approached him and said, uh, uh, Fraser, how would you like to kick it around the TARDIS for a few weeks more than the Highlanders? And Fraser, you know, got along well with Pat Troughton and said, sure. Right. And uh, Annika <laughs> Wills and Michael Craze kind of looked at uh, Fraser Hines as the cuckoo in the nest. Right, right. 
He's the longest serving companion, isn't he? Apart from, um, I think for the most number of episodes, right? But Clara has surpassed. Yeah, him I think I think Clara's actually beaten him too. But I mean, Fraser Hines was like a well-known, um, pretty much a ladies' man, as far as I understand it, in mm-hmm. the sixties. Um, kind of well-known around town. Yes, got a charming Scotsman, <laughs> and certainly you know the him and Pat, and then the uh, the lady companions. Deborah Watling and um, Wendy Padbury all seem to have a fabulous time. So, <laughs> a lot of the success of Companions is really is to do with the chemistry of the actors. I mean, yes. think with, I mean, thinking about Fraser Hines and then extending that to Nardole, um, one is reminded of Donna and the Tenth Doctor. Right, um, very good on-screen chemistry. Yeah, where obviously you know she was. Uh, one-off Christmas special companion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, you know, both uh, David Tennant and Catherine Tate seem to get on really well together. They've done they've done Shakespeare on the stage in London mm-hmm. together and in several Shakespeare plays. And they're doing big finishes together. And obviously, they just have a really fun time as two actors playing off each other. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of it's a lot of it a lot of it has to do with that really. Um, and Matt Lucas is is obviously, you know, he's he's known as a as a Doctor Who fan. Right. Uh, he famously uh, on when uh, Little Britain was first on the radio, they hired Tom Baker to do the the kind of linking narration and that mm-hmm. carried over to the TV as well. Right. I guess it would have been the 40th anniversary. Those sketches that Mark Gatiss did. Yeah. Had both Matt Lucas and David Walliams in because David Walliams is a fan as well. So he's mm-hmm. got he's got form as someone who really likes who. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, so I mean, yeah, I, I'm wondering whether he's going to turn into like a chameleon style character. I'm wondering whether he's he's actually or a Turlo. Maybe he's like a he's a secret alien assassin of some kind or a robot. <laughs> well, he was a cyborg, right? He had That's his true. head in, in uh, encased in the Hydroflex cyborg. In uh, Husbands of River Song, and I guess the doctor scooped him out or reattached his head yeah. sometime between that and the return of Doctor Mysterio. Yeah, yeah. But it is—I mean—it's interesting. You know, that the default position of companions is basically tends to be female. That's probably because the default condition of the doctor, or the default state of the doctor, is a male. Yeah, exactly. What is it the wife in space says that it should have been called the Ian Show or something? <laughs> well, if you look back at the early early days of the first season ian was the leading man the doctor was more of a secondary character he was and this show really revolved i think around ian and barbara right and right once they leave the show gradually shifts more and more focused on the doctor who is the doctor right and then Eventually, the Doctor and the TARDIS are the only two things that have any kind of continuity linking back to the very first story. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think those first seasons with Ian and Barbara kind of center, you know, the kind of linking and narrative arc Mm -hmm. is how are we going to get the teachers back to Coal Hill School? How are we going to get them back to 1963? We have this narrative from the unearthly child through to the chase. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, and then, you see, we have the slightly uneasy introduction of Peter Purvis. As Stephen Taylor, yes. As Stephen Taylor, who um, is he's always difficult for me, of course, Stephen, because I know him really only as Peter Purvis out of Blue Peter. Right. Because he was my kind of formative Blue Peter presenter, mm-hmm. along with Valerie Singleton and John Noakes. Um, <laughs> and it's very, very hard for me to watch him be uh, you know, roughly the same age um, and be a Doctor Who companion. It's just very, mm-hmm. it's very kind of difficult for me to kind of bridge that gap. 
And it also is difficult too because most of his cereals don't, don't exactly, survive. Yeah. And I'd... yeah, and I mean, which is you know, but he's this kind of sort of uneasy sort of Flash Gordon <laughs> base base man guy, um, which it's a, it's a kind of fifties style incarnation of you know what a space pilot is like. He's all kind of mm-hmm. action packed and slightly characterless, and and there's, I mean that's no fault of Peter Purvis, who's actually a pretty good actor. But I don't think he was really given a lot to do. And then I think it's actually very interesting that they kind of whiplash back to the swinging 60s with Ben Jackson and, the, you know, mm-hmm. this, the cool sailor. Right. Because they realize that kind of future companions are problematic. And I think they always have been difficult. I mean, I think, again, if we were to fast forward through, you know, just whiz through all of the companions, I think companions who aren't really... Um, I think it's difficult to write for companions who are contemporary to ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. And again, I think this is one of the great insights that the genius of Russell T. Davis brings to The Who Show, is the story is the story of the companions. Um, and right. again, the Doctor becomes a kind of a, another part of the drama. Did you happen to catch upon some of the research? <laughs> it was just kind of a happenstance research that the former Doctor Who magazine editor Clayton Hickman did on the Ben Jackson character? No, I did not. Tell us more. So, well, he uh, tells Polly that he's serving aboard the HMS Teaser, mm-hmm. and the HMS Teaser was scrapped <laughs> six months before Ben Jackson was actually saying that he was, he was on the teaser <laughs> on leave right. for the teaser, so his entire character premises a lie. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, interesting. So there's perhaps a backstory to Ben Jackson that we don't quite really know. Wow. Oh, interesting. I didn't know. I mean, I, I didn't really realize there was, there was, that there wasn't a real HMS teaser. Um, yes. <laughs> so I wonder why they picked the name HMS teaser then. Because it's, I mean, it's, you know, because I mean, because you, <laughs> you, you could think of, if you're trying to think of like, okay, what's a generic name for a, uh, Her mm-hmm. Majesty's ship, you would... I don't know whether you pick teaser or not. I don't know. It could be just simply that that's what they had in wardrobe because he did have an HMS teaser uniform. Oh, interesting. So maybe it was just a coincidence. Maybe that, okay, let's pull a sailor's uniform out of wardrobe and it's HMS teaser. Let's go with that. Maybe that's as simply as it had or maybe there was actually, you know, part of his character sketch. But oh, interesting. You know, yeah. It, yeah, It's a newly uncovered fact. So... Uh, Richard Bignall and and gang haven't fully have, exposed have, the right. research. <laughs> right. Well, as as everyone knows, us we who fans love love little facts about our show <laughs> that we can blow into kind of junk. So of course in this, so in the Hooniverse, um, which I've decided now to call it, uh, HMS Teaser was not decommissioned in 1965 or 66 or something. Very mm-hmm. interesting. Very very interesting. So, touching back with Steven Taylor, how do you think he rated as a replacement, effectively, for Ian Chesterton? Uh, uh, I'm I'm afraid, and again, this is no no reflection on the the excellence of Peter Purvis's performance. From what I've been able to absorb of his performance, Mm -hmm. and I'm not a huge listener to of the soundtracks. Um, I do prefer pictures, so again, my mainly experienced (laughs) him through moving images, of which there is not enough. Um, He's not as good as Mm. uh, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, in my humble opinion. I think he's, again, handicapped by not having a lot of complete serials. His 
tour de force is in in the massacre. The massacre of Buffalo New Eve, yeah, and yeah, and uh, the savages, and both of them are really, really good Stephen Taylor pieces, but. Without the visuals, their audience is limited. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think particularly the massacre, which I think is a very curious and interesting story. I would would love to be able to, to have experienced that. But sadly, it probably looks like I won't. But there you go. Let's talk about my own time machine. But yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I guess in my opinion, I mean, I think they had trouble writing for a future space pilot. Well, it takes a certain amount of imagination. It and does. Even like with writing for Jamie, which is supposed to be a, a historical Scotsman. Yeah. He becomes a contemporary character pretty quickly. He becomes like a, just a slightly dim, regular Scots person, you know, which is <laughs> which is fine. Um, and I think, I mean, yeah, I mean, whereas I think, you know, because of the difference in the way, certainly in those days, I think people address the different addressed writing for female and male characters is that you could write a female character from the future because females. They weren't generally seen to be protagonists. They were really, really didn't kind of mm. do anything particular. So you could kind of backwrite them or kind of write them in a kind of a, you know, a lesser fashion. But, you know, the male characters who are expected to be very active and be protagonists in the story required a lot more effort to, like, work out exactly what their characters should be. And I think, you know, again, this kind of amorphous kind of Flash Gordon idea that he's some kind of space pilot from the future isn't really enough to provide him with enough character for anyone to realize what the hell he's supposed to be on about. Interesting. Okay. I think. Yeah. They jettison him pretty quick. (laughs) Yeah. The story of who gets a bit messy around that time. Right. there's, There's a lot of coming and going. And a lot of that, it has to do with the producers really trying to find a way of uh, shunting off to the side William Hartnell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, you know, I think was becoming very, really quite difficult to work with at that mm-hmm. point because of his illness. And uh, companions seem to stick around very short number of stories. Uh, we see Ben Jackson departing pretty soon after he makes his appearance in the... Uh, war machines right and kind of unceremoniously said goodbye to in the faceless ones yeah i always had a soft spot for michael craze and ben jackson i think it was because <laughs> again you know my formative experience of a lot of pre-1974-5 who was through the medium through the written through the through the page yeah and he was very well written in stories like um, doctor who and the cybermen which was the adaptation of the moon base and uh, Doctor Who and the Tenth Planet, um, obviously an adaptation of the Tenth Planet. Mm-hmm. The kind of turns of phrase that he had, you know, was called Polly Duchess, you know, the kind of, you know, Mockney <laughs> blow up style kind of like swinging London Cockney that he was. It was, right. it, was uh, it was good. So, I'm, I, as I said, you know, I, I haven't really been able to experience too much of him, unfortunately, on the actual mm-hmm. on the actual show because um, right. not a lot of his stuff survives. But I think right. it was a good it was a pretty good attempt to create a you know I mean you know all Doctor Who characters are in some way you know an assemblage of cliches but you know to <laughs> to create a you know a, a kind of a swinging Cockney Londoner right the kind of bit of rough to uh, Polly's you know uh, West End girl it's like West End where East End boys and West End girls <laughs> like the like the Pet Shop Boys sung about it could have been about Ben and Polly. Yeah, and he was kind of shown the door when they decided to bring Jamie on full-time. Yeah, yeah, and again, I mean, I think, you know, as, as, as we've just said, I mean, you know, I think your comments about Jamie are exactly correct. Fraser Hines is, you know, a charming actor who had a lot of good chemistry with the leading man that was Patrick Troughton. So, you know, again, mm-hmm. 
they just brought him on board and he was actually able to be more of a blank slate in terms of a male companion. We've really got no idea how a real uh, 18th century Highland warrior <laughs> might have reacted to anything, basically, let right. alone well, being in space. Certainly not Jamie McCrimmon. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so, you know, again, he just morphs into a kind of a dim Scotsman that the Doctor can mm-hmm. explain stuff to, you know, and he's brave and he's loyal. He's like a kind of a big dog or something. Like a... <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. That's probably a good analogy. Yeah, of, uh, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, you know, you get these... The doctor's best the friend. The doctor's best friend, a... <laughs> exactly. He's like the canine of um, of the 1960s. So. <laughs> Except he doesn't have a laser in his nose. But, I mean, he's, he's great. I mean, I think, I mean, all fans who are proper fans should have a lot of affection for Fraser Hines and Jamie McGrimmon. Mm-hmm. Um, I, again, I'm, I'm upset that we don't have the Highlanders to watch. I would love to see that uh, particular episode. I'd be very, very curious. The Highlanders would be a really interesting story. Yeah. And it isn't because Jamie's, it's his first story. Because really, he's a minor character. Right. And it's a, it's a surprise that he finds his way onto the TARDIS. But it's a real tour de force for Annika Wills and Polly. Right, right. It's really Polly's story. The doctor, Patrick Troughton, is still trying to find his legs and he's still doing the silly voices and funny disguises. Right, bit, that right. Kind of characteristic of his earlier stories up up through probably Tell Moonbase. Really, right. That it really, I think, would be interesting and I think we really could see Annika Wills shine as Polly. Yeah, the Highlanders. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And for you know, for that reason alone, that's one of the one of the stories I'd like to see back. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, we're probably not going to see that, but um, <laughs> probably not. It's, um, I mean, Clun was a, but the Battle of Clun's a big deal. It's a, weirdly, it was a big deal when I was at school when I was a kid. Like it was one of those things you always learnt about in school for some reason. Well, you had mentioned in a prior podcast that uh, there was a movie, a, a contemporary movie, not too many years ago. Very, earlier. very famous movie made in 1964 called Culloden, which was the debut movie of a film director who I'm a great fan of called Peter Watkins, who then went on to make an even more famous film called um, The War Game, which was a, a movie which was basically a simulated documentary about a nuclear attack on Britain, which was famously never shown on the BBC because it was seen, seemed to be too frightening. Uh, and also, the, what's interesting about Culloden, again, it's a faux documentary. It's, it's it's filmed as if, like a film crew would like film in Vietnam or something. It's it's kind of, you know, it's this kind of tribal, these kind of tribal Scots facing off against a, an army that was incredible, was far more advanced um, in terms of weaponry and tactics. Uh, sort of a you were there approach. Yeah, yeah, which was, which was a pretty unique approach at that time for mm-hmm. uh, kind of an historical... Um, documentary so again i mean i I don't know why the battle of culloden was such a big thing uh, in the kind of 60s and 70s because i'm not sure it's a it's really a piece of history that people really kind of know about anymore to be honest it's certainly not something that your average american really would key in on for british history which is interesting because, I mean, after Culloden, we then go straight into the Highland Clearances, which is basically when all the land that those tribes lived on in Scotland was then taken over by English landlords. And that's when you start to get the massive Scots emigration from the Highlands of Scotland to Canada 
and to the West Indies. West Indies is basically slaves or servants. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I, as far as I remember, the plot of, of the Highlanders, that, that, that's yep. where our heroes were being shipped off to, was to mm-hmm. work as slaves on, um, on, on plantations. But that's when you start to get all the Scots moving to Canada. So in some ways it's, it's interesting that it's not a piece of history that's really taught in America because it's one of the kind of foundations of kind of the secondary white uh, migrations to um, uh, the United States and, and North America. It may have a bigger impact in Canadian yeah, history. Possibly. Anyway, that's a bit of a digression. <laughs> so yeah, Jamie McCrimmon, he's good. Fraser Hines does a great job in the in the Big Finish audios, and he's a fun character that sometimes pops up in the comic strips, or used to certainly... Um, has popped up in the Doctor Who magazine comic strips, and um, <laughs> I mean, he's certainly one of my favorite male companions. And when he departs with uh, Zoe Harriet in the War Games, we get John Pertwee exiled on Earth, and we don't have an official male companion for the entire tenure exactly, exactly. of John Pertwee. Now, some will argue, of course, that you know the, the unit soldiers are right. de facto companions. I choose not mm-hmm. to argue that. I like to put units in a different place and not count them as being official companions. Do you agree? It just depends. <laughs> I, <laughs> depends on your mood from day to day. Well, for my purposes, I really don't see uh, Sarah Kingdom as a companion or... <laughs> <laughs> and River Song, I think, is dubious as a de- described as a companion. Right. Certainly, certainly can consider her family, but as a companion, I'm not sure that they're really traveling assistant, so to speak, that we have with someone like a, a like a Jamie or even a reluctant traveler like uh, Ian, who was kidnapped. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I mean they don't. They aren't, they aren't trapped on the TARDIS. I mean, they don't trap right. them, basically. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess, you know, neither does the Doctor in in some respects. Mm-hmm. Uh, Benton never gets carted off to, like, Solos to tangle with the mutants. <laughs> it's, I mean, that's Joe's job to, like, you know, handle ha- handle that kind of stuff. Did Benton get trapped in the TARDIS with the three Doctors? Yeah. Get, my memory is really fuzzy. Yeah. I moved off to... Yeah, no, he is. The he land is, of Omega. He is in the antimatter universe of, of Omega. And of course, you know, he gets all tangled mm-hmm. up with a time monster as well. There's a little bit of traveling there. In the uh, TARDIS? Is he in the TARDIS? Yeah. I don't believe He gets turned into a baby, doesn't he? Yes. Um, he's in ba- his nappy at the end. <laughs> the Benton baby. Um, no, I don't... You know, you're right. No, he doesn't... He doesn't tra- I think mm-hmm. the only TARDIS travel he does is in is in the Three Doctors. Three Doctors. Yeah. And I think that's the only TARDIS travel that the Brigadier does is in the Three Doctors as I well, I think you're, you are correct. Unless, of course, you we begin to count five Doctors. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, and technically it wasn't even TARDIS travel in either of those serials because, exactly. um, well, five doctors time scooped and in uh, three doctors, it's Omega's uh, gel guards that zap them. Exactly, exactly. So we can skip really right over the third doctor's tenure, I believe, in terms of male companions. And we can land fairly and squarely with the amazing Harry Sullivan, played by the inestimable Ian Martyr. Yes, one of my absolute favorite companions. Yes, 100% and I think favorite companion, exactly. Probably for nostalgia reasons, Ian Martyr's time with uh, Liz Sladen, with uh, Tom Baker as the Doctor, really, really is one of my absolute favorite TARDIS time teams. It's a sublime era, actually, and I think in some ways, um, you know, it's before Tom 
had really kind of realized what an amazing hit he was and had a slightly more, I think, generosity towards other actors that he was working with, which I think he <laughs> lost over time, which is fair enough because, you know, he was a big star. As far as I remember, Harry Sullivan was written in in case they had cast a doctor who wouldn't be able to do a lot of action work if right. they'd gone with Mr. Pastry. Well, even Pertwee was having back problems. Back problems, exactly, yeah. For the action, and he wouldn't be one to admit it, but he was slowing down. Absolutely. Season 7 compared to season 11. Yeah, yeah. You could definitely see that things were hurting a little more. So they wrote Harry in, really, to provide the Doctor with someone who could do the daring do that needed Mm -hmm. to be done at any particular point. And unfortunately, I don't really know the story of how Ian Martyr got cast, but he just gives a wonderful just mm-hmm. great well he was in carnival great. of monsters oh, of course he was exactly he was he was in carnival of monsters and i believe if memory serves he was considered for one of the unit men okay. i believe mike yates right and he was busy with other work at the time but barry letts and Terrence sticks had remembered him and then when barry letts was looking for casting harry sullivan ian martyr's name came up yeah And I think, you know, reading interviews, and unfortunately he died very, very young and a long time ago. Diabetes, I believe. Yeah, complications arising from diabetes, yeah. So he died very young, a very long time ago, really before fandom was interviewing people. We don't know a lot about what he thought about playing the role, but we do know a lot Mm -hmm. about what people thought of him. And I I haven't read any interview with anyone who's got anything bad to say about him. Mm -hmm. Um, He seems to have been just a really kind of stand-up bloke and a really good actor. Everyone liked him. Mm And it's a it's really shame too that he and uh, Tom Baker weren't able to get the funding for the Scratchman. Doctor Who meets Scratchman. Yeah, <laughs> you think that's a shame? You don't think that would have been a, just a crazy disaster of some kind? <laughs> no, I think that would have been excellent. It would have been a big with Vincent Price as the Devil. Sure, why, sure, not? why not? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think that would have been a disaster. I think I I assume we would have had uh, Liz Sladen return and. Harry Sullivan return. It would be worth it just for all that. Yes. No, you are correct. Right. I think there would have been really good on screen chemistry. And I think I think there would have been a decent story about it. And it would have been very, very nineteen seventies. Yeah. Well, I mean that's I mean, this is true. I mean for for those of you who have read or are planning to read any of the uh, novelizations of uh, the early novelizations of Who Ian Martyr's novelizations are some of the very best. Um, he was mm-hmm. he was a very very accomplished writer, um, a <laughs> lot darker and more violent than, yes. than than is on the screen, but just mm-hmm. very very fun to read. Yeah, they were a blast to read when I was yeah, a child. Absolutely, and again, as you, as you said, David, I mean the chemistry on screen between. Uh, Tom Baker and Liz Sladen and Ian Martyr. It's just perfect. And they're obviously having a really nice time, but they obviously like each other. And, I mean, that really, you know, really comes across on the screen. And certainly when I was, um, you know, regular listeners of this podcast will know, you know, a lot of my experience of Doctor Who was filtered through my kind of early school days. And, again, when when I was a kid, you know, when I was kind of 8, 9, 10, etc., Harry Sullivan was wonderful because you had another male and basically you know, I played with right. other boy children because that's what children do <laughs> and you didn't have to be a girl so you know you had the doctor could who was obviously always male could have a companion who was male it was perfect so we spent a lot of time being the doctor and Harry which was perfect for us right <laughs> yeah. and you know you mentioned that he was cast or Ian Martyr was cast to be tough guy to do the action and I think 
Philip Hinchcliffe, and granted this was early days on the job, but they really missed a trick with the Suntaran experiment when Tom Baker broke his collarbone. Right. Having Terry Walsh play the doctor and not rewrite the script, I think would have been a better better use of all actors' concern if the roles were reversed with the doctor going into the Suntaran spaceship, disabling the drive, and then Harry trying to wear down the Suntaran. That would have been great, yeah. I mean, you would have had a lot better fight scene. Yeah. <laughs> and it would have been really, I think, a moment for Harry Sullivan to shine and do exactly what his character was brought in to do. Yeah. But it wasn't as rehearsed and it wasn't as scripted. But I always go, mm, it's a missed opportunity. It's too bad. Missed opportunity. Yeah. No, I think, I think, no, I think you're right. I think that's a good comment. Um, I mean, yes, I mean, we would have just loved to have seen more of Harry Sullivan. And you know what? I mean, I think if, you know, if, if, if Marta hadn't died so, so young, I'm, I'm certain, mm. you know, he would still be, I'd obviously be, be quite old now, <laughs> but I mean, you know, we would have had more of Sullivan because I think, you know, he was right. a popular actor. Everyone loved working with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure he would have, he would have been back in the eighties in some kind of way under, under, under JNT and, you know, he'd be doing mm-hmm. audios and stuff now. And right. we'd all, oh, definitely. We'd, he'd, he'd have a shtick for conventions that mm-hmm. we'd all know and love. It's just very, very sad <laughs> that, that someone who was that charismatic and was able to kind of breathe life into, you know, again, an assemblage of upper class kind of, you know, naval officer cliches that, you know, basically all, that was all <laughs> Harry Sullivan was. Just kind of breathe life into those cliches and make that assemblage of cliches a real person. Right. His time with Doctor Who and on Earth was too short. Ian Marta, we'll raise a, we'll raise a glass of... What do what Doctor Who fans drink? What is, a, what is our drink? <laughs> that we have anything, anything. beer yeah, yeah. <laughs> well ginger pop ginger, pop. ginger we'll, beer we'll, we'll raise a glass of ginger pop <laughs> and we'll eat a well-cooked meal in your in your honor <laughs> so we have the next male companion would be adric um uh, and, you know adric probably one of my least favorite companions i know that the characters had some rehabilitation done on him do you think that coincides with the time that you were Watching Doctor Who, though, if Adric was in your youth rather than Harry Sullivan, do you think Adric would have been more of an identity figure than an annoyance? Quite possibly, <laughs> though I think even, I mean, you know, what was I, like 13, 14 or something when Adric came on the scene. Hmm. And as far as I understand from, you know, the showrunners at that time, um, the Adric was introduced as someone that the male Doctor Who fan would be able to identify with. So he's like nerdy, mm-hmm. likes maths, um, <laughs> which again, I, at the time, I just found incredibly patronizing. And, you know, I didn't want mm. to watch someone who was like myself. I wanted to watch someone who was not like myself, who was like a, a naval or doctor or something, or like a, an right. alien from the planet Gallifrey who like saved mm-hmm. everybody. And I think that's for me why Adric doesn't work. It's like, well, why do people want to watch themselves? in an escapist adventure series. Um, so do you think Adric was better with Tom Baker or do you think he did better with Peter Davison? I don't think he did, I don't think he did very good with either. I actually, ironically, I think he was better with Tom Baker mm-hmm. because Tom Baker's dislike of both the actor and the character <laughs> mirrored my own dislike of both the actor and the character. So I mm-hmm. felt that the relationship they had was more realistic than the kind mm. of, ooh, isn't Adric fantastic and awesome and good at mm-hmm. maths 
characterization that we had to accept when he was playing mm-hmm. off Peter Davison. That's my opinion. Mm, okay. How about how about you? What's your take on Adric? I think Adric suffered from uh, inexperience with Matthew Waterhouse as being an actor, and the writing at the time just didn't develop really any of the companions from Adric to Tegan to Nyssa. They all pretty much were one note as they were introduced. So right. Adric was kind of the annoying uh, mathematical genius. Tegan was the mouthy air stewardess. And Nyssa was the afterthought scientific companion. But really, there was no role for her in the TARDIS either. No, so. no. And the way that the script editor really didn't want to focus in on the doctor or the companion. So Sayward was always introducing other, you know, faux companions. (laughs) Other more interesting characters. Right. So we have uh, (laughs) Todd and Kinda or uh, uh, Richard Mace and uh, the Visitation. Right. We have other characters that the doctor spends time with because his traveling companions were not particularly well-developed or made interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel the best of that bunch is Nyssa, actually. I mean, maybe because I really like Sarah Sutton. <laughs> I still really like Sarah Sutton. She's kind of alien and has mm-hmm. her, kind of, her kind of diffidentness is kind of alien and makes sense. But anyway. Well, Davison has said many a time that he thought his doctor was best suited or best fitted for traveling with Nyssa yeah. more than yeah, I think so. Adric or Tegan or the ones that followed. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, that's, and sadly, you see, I mean, it really kind of spiked Earthshock for me, you know, of course, which is this kind of, oh, no, a companion has died. And, like, you know, my reaction was, like, <laughs> good. Um, I don't care. I'm glad he's dead. Right. I didn't like him, mm. and uh, I'm glad he's dead. Cold. It was cold. cold. It was cold. <laughs> and it, actually, my reaction was sort of mirrored by the Tardis crew as well. He sort of like, oh, Adric. They just kind of forgot about him pretty, mm-hmm. uh, pretty quickly. Adric's death, I think, was another missed opportunity in the show. Rather than sit, the Doctor saying, "No, we can't go back," I think it would have been really good to have the following episode, Time Flight be all about what happens if you do come back. You are exactly correct. And I think even even at my relatively callow age, when I saw those two episodes, I remember thinking to myself, wow, so the Concord's going to go back to like dinosaur times? Mm-hmm. Maybe they're going to try and rescue Adric or something. Right. And they didn't. And that was like, mm-hmm. what a waste. Um, and I think right. nowadays that's exactly what you do. Well, the thing is that that's where the drama was in that. I mean, that was your season finale to have that. It's like the search for Spock. It's the search for Adric. Can we rescue Adric? What happens to the fabric of time right. if the doctor goes back and tries to save Adric? Is it impossible? Can the doctor rewrite history? Can he change that? And, you know, it's just, well, we're done with Adric. I mean, how about this? How about this as a, as a plot? Okay, instead of when, uh, what's his name, the kind of weird magician in Time Flight, who rips off his mask and reveals himself to be the master. What if he'd ripped mm-hmm. off his mask and revealed himself to be Adric? Ooh. <laughs> Become all evil. Yeah. The story would still make no it sense. It still would make no sense. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Well, is it, are, we, are, we, are we done with classic male companions? Cause I think, oh, no, Vizzler No, we Turlo. have Vizzler Turlo, Turlo, yes. Yeah. Gods. I mean, what do what, you... What, what, <laughs> Yeah, Turlo. Mark I mean Mark Stritson again is a, I think is a stand up bloke and mm-hmm. totally cobber mate now that he lives in 
Australia and all that. Right. I didn't like him as a companion at all. Yeah, it's another concept companion. And I think male male companions often become concept companions, yeah. Mm -hmm. And once his first three stories were done... He didn't really play much of a role until we had The Planet of Fire. Yeah, which again, you know, it's funny. You know, Sarah Sutton in her last story, Terminus gets all her kit off and wanders around in her underwear, which is awesome. <laughs> Mark Srixon in his last story, Planet of Fire, again, ta- Speedo briefs. <laughs> takes takes all his clothes off and walks around in his in his in his swimsuit. So it's it's right. like it's like okay, this is your last story. Finally, you can change your clothes <laughs> and wear something that's a bit more comfortable. I, I took against Turlough from the very beginning, and this is, again, very personal. I was uh, lucky enough to be at a, an exclusive private school hmm. at that time, where apparently also Vizlor Turlough was at an exclusive private school as well, which was so completely unlike <laughs> my school in like every, every respect that I just thought they don't know what they're talking about. They're literally, they have no idea what's it, what it's like to be at an English public school. And, but, and they're just pretending, and this is just fiction. And not, not only is it mm-hmm. fiction, it's not very good fiction. Was it the lack of Quidditch that did Oh, yeah, no, or? of course, because actually in real English public schools, you, we, we, do, we do play Quidditch all the time. It's a well-known <laughs> game. Yeah, it was definitely it was the lack of Quidditch. It was the lack of Quidditch. It was, it really was. And he also seemed to be really old as well. Yes. He was obviously in, like in his early 20s. I guess he was an alien pretending to be a public school boy. Right, but he wasn't really convincing at all to be. No, and they had this kind of Billy Bunter-esque English school. Well, they made poor Mark Strickson dye his hair orange. Yeah, and it just, it just... He looked weird. He looked weird. <laughs> and leaping 20 years into the future, we have Adam as our first male companion, I guess. Is Adam really a companion, though? He's only lasts a couple of episodes. Mm-hmm. Well... I don't if you count consider it, Katerina and Sarah Kingdom as companions. I don't really count Adam as a companion. I mean, I'm actually really excited mm-hmm. to have him on for mm-hmm. more than just two episodes because I think a kind. Of, I, I actually was interested <laughs> in the idea of having a, a companion who didn't really want to be there, but keep him on for. I longer. think the I think the doctor called him Rose's pet, but then he also called Mickey Rose's pet. So right, right. <laughs> I think that was a characterization of Eccleston that he had this passive aggressive jealousy towards anyone that rose might be interested in right no that's true yeah 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 um yeah adam yeah i don't really count him as a companion i'm afraid so okay yeah punt Punt. he's out (laughs) i do count mickey of course as a companion absolutely yeah i think he was a really good companion yeah, Noel Clark does an excellent job, I think, portraying Mickey, and he only gets stronger the longer he's in the role. Absolutely. And he's, again, he's a very charismatic and watchable actor, mm-hmm. I think. And I, I think they, they punked out a bit in terms of his kind of arc as a character. It seems like the writers or the showrunners kind of lost interest with Mickey. I, I was kind of mm-hmm. hoping there'd be a more of a, a conclusion to his story you know he becomes something more than like the hopeless boyfriend which he kind of does but in a kind of sort right. of tossed off sort of way hmm. in journey's end it's nice to see him back in journey's end and i think it's from my two bits it's probably nicer to see mickey return in the development that mickey has undergone than seeing rose back yeah i think you know to rose's departure in um, doomsday was perfect for their character and then rtd has to go back to the well again and bring her back 
I think that was a mistake. But with Mickey, his departure wasn't that same heartfelt departure. And I felt that he had a reason, whether it was a right reason or wrong reason, but to stay in the parallel Cybus universe because there wasn't much left for him with Rose traipsing around with the doctor. Exactly, exactly. But he had a life, a, a new life, and he had his grandmother back. And yeah. There was some similarities and some comfort. It was interesting yeah. to see what became of him, but he's back in our universe now, right? And he's dating or married to Martha. I, is that I how, think so. I, that's how he ended I up. I think he and is, yeah, sort of, which kind of kind of spoils it, really. I mean, to have him as a, you know, as someone who's in this parallel universe, as you said, I mean, that was a very satisfying con- conclusion to his story, mm-hmm. but then they couldn't leave him alone. Right. And I, I, to be honest, I, mean, I couldn't actually see him as someone who would be romantically interested in Martha Jones and vice versa. I mean, it's almost mm-hmm. like a, a Leela and an Andred kind of thing. It's like, really? They went out and got married and stuff? That doesn't make sense. Yeah, I think it was Russell T. Davies trying to tie everything up nicely in a neat little bowl when he left. Yeah. And, uh, it didn't really work. Oh well. didn't really work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, are we counting Captain Jack as a companion? I think he qualifies. He certainly has traveled outside the TARDIS. That is true. <laughs> he's been in, he's been inside the TARDIS. He's a companion. Yeah, I would consider him a companion. Yeah. He's uh, an interesting fellow. Yeah. John Barrow, and this is what I mean about, you know, that the show actually then had confidence to have, you know, a, an openly, well, I guess Captain Jack is kind of omnisexual rather than, like, homosexual, but mm-hmm. to, like, have someone who is like that. And have the confidence to, to to kind of write that as kind of be a part of his character. I think Davies initially had the character start out to be bisexual, but towards the end of uh, RTD's tenure, um, Jack certainly became more leaning towards being a gay character rather than a bisexual character. And I think it's I think from what one understands is because John Barryman is such a, a huge character in real life, and certainly mm-hmm. you know being gay is one of his things. Um, right. I think it was probably hard to kind of actually for writers to kind of conceptualize of him as being bisexual when he was like <laughs> so obviously not. He was just completely, completely homosexual instead. So you're not you're not buying his secret family that was exposed in the Five-ish Doctors. Uh, <laughs> I love the Five-ish Doctors. I love the Five-ish Doctors. Uh, yes, he gets, it's it's all an act. He's just like a boring, a boring man who loves it. Lives in suburbia with his wife and two point four children. Exactly. It's all a put on. I'm not buying that at all, no. <laughs> uh, he's, he's a great character. I, I, I hope he comes back. I mean, I, I... Well, he's a he's an RTD character that, surprisingly, Moffat first wrote for. Exactly. And Moffat never brought him back under his tenure, and I doubt we'll see him again. Which is a shame, because, I mean, he, he, he doesn't seem to be a very Moffaty character. Uh, now that we well, know a lot about, you know, mm-hmm. the kind of characters that Moffat likes to write, um, right. it's it's he's an RTD creation. Oh, yeah. Oh, so he was. Oh, I, I guess I, I didn't. I didn't. Didn't fully understand. So he was. He was created by. 
RTD, but he was written by Moffat. Yeah, he's an RTD creation oh, interesting. that Moffat initially wrote for. Right. Well, that would explain why Moffat doesn't want to bring him back because you know he didn't mm-hmm. create the guy and um, you know wants to have you know River Song. Well, Chibnall certainly did write for him quite a bit in Torchwood, so maybe uh, Chris Chibnall will bring him back for one or two yeah, episodes. I think it'd be nice. It'd be nice to have you know a Captain Jack special. And that would certainly tie back in to uh, a return to more character-driven serials that Chibnall may be bringing about. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so where are we with male companions? Are we counting Wilfred Mott as a male companion, or is he more of a character? Mm, I mean, he's a companion, but uh, I think in the modern era, certainly, the word companion or assistant has really been watered down in meaning. Even uh, the shades of gray were added in the Hartnell era. Right, right. And further confounded with the Pertwee era, if you have a earthbound doctor and you ignore the men of unit, those effectively were companions of sorts. Yeah. And you have the temporary companions in the Hartnell era with Katarina right. and Sarah Kingdom and even Brett Vian, who doesn't get companion status. He doesn't. It's more fluid. Yeah. It, it's a very sliding scale. The, what I think of uh, the assistant or the companion are really geared in the 70s. So you have Liz, Joe, Sarah, Leela, Romana. Those are the companions. They kind of set the standard. Right. And you start to see companions at the latter end of the Hartnell era and into the Troughton era. What's interesting about, I think, the Troughton era is, is again, as as you've pointed out, Throughout all of the second Doctor's tenure as being the Doctor, you know, he had he had one companion. Yeah, much. except for that debut story. Yeah, which is Jamie, and so Jamie almost mm-hmm. becomes actually more than a companion. He becomes something right. else. He's like a co-character of some kind, you know. Well, he's a co-star. Co-star. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I I like to think of of Wilfred as as a as a as a you know, because he's another military man. As a as a he is a kind of a, a unit level mm. companion um, in some ways. Yeah, that's an interesting take on him. You know, because he was in the Paris. I think um, I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, which then, I think, then brings us on to, I think, the final male companion, which would be Rory, right? Right. What do you think of Rory? Well, hmm, I think Arthur Darville is a good actor. I think Rory is a character. He, there's a, a particular style of acting that I think became popular with British male actors, especially in a kind of comedic vein, pioneered by Tim from The Office. So, I, I don't know, again, David, you, you, you watched the original British Office, right? Do you know that at all? I've, I've watched a bit yeah, of it. Yeah, so the character Tim, played by Martin Freeman, you know, has this kind of continual kind of double-take way of conveying his kind of confusion and irritation with the world. And that seemed to be, I mean, I think it works well on The Office, but again, I think and that's that's the style of acting that right. the Arthur Darwell right. uses. You know, Rory is continually kind of ooh, 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 confounded, ooh, confused, mm-hmm. quip. And it's, it's, I just find it very, very irritating, I'm afraid. Hmm. Well, the thing I think is strong with Arthur Darvel's performance of Rory is... He is there as Amy's boyfriend, husband, protector. He isn't there as the doctor's companion. He's there trying to keep Amy out of trouble, keeping Amy safe. 
and he he has a really good perspective on what the doctor does to his assistants to his companions and it's expressed in like the vampires of venice is you're trying to make her like you and you're trying to change her and she's going to be taking these risks and it's going to (laughs) eventually you travel with a doctor it isn't always going to be a happy ending yeah yeah (laughs) and i think i mean it's clear i mean the more we know about Moffat's writing and the more that, you know, we, we, his writing feeds into his character. Again, as my understanding of Amy is that Amy is a Mary Sue character completely. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's, she's a, she's, she's Stephen Moffat as a really, really sexy woman, which is the kind of woman, (laughs) woman, this kind of woman that Stephen (laughs) Moffat would be if he was a woman. Of course, he was writing himself as a woman. So, I mean, of course, then, you know, the, the kind of lover, boyfriend, future husband of, the Moffat stand-in female character has to be hopeless and ridiculous because <laughs> he doesn't actually really want to ever have a proper relationship with that person. I mean, that's my mm. kind of psychological an- analysis. And I think it's why Amy sometimes kind of sort of fails as a character because I think Moffat forgets that, that she has to be able to function as a self-sustaining dramatic construction rather than simply you know kind of collection of his own fantasies about how women should be in my opinion Mm, yeah unlike amy i who i think is just a walking talking plot point a lot of times i think rory has something to play off of just in the characterization of a reluctant traveler with the doctor who is a little bit wary and more grounded on what is going on and i think that's a really good counter to kind of the uh exuberantness of uh, matt smith's doctor yeah it's, it's he's very grounding and i think he added stability to it it's the first time that we've had a companion couple really since Ian and Barbara, and this is a openly acknowledged companion couple, right. rather than you know, uh, uh, kind of a fan retcon companion couple of Ian and Barbara. Right, right, right. So right. I think Rory has a lot to offer. I think his relationship that Chris Chibnall that we touched upon last week, the relationship that uh, with his father that Chris Chibnall introduced, added more depth to his character. Yeah. You're correct. Yes, that is correct. And I think I think Rory Rory had a lot of depth to his character, but it really was the Matt and Karen show and a lot of the focus in on it were on the on the two leads with the co-star being Arthur Darville. Right. 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 I think he right. had a hard role to yeah. play, but he did it very well. And even with the mannerisms that you say, like Tim from The Office, I thought that worked well enough within the character that he was being asked to portray. And where I think were the more, even the more kind of the absurd type things his character was asked to do, like be the Roman centurion or an auton that waited you know, hundreds of years. I think I, I, I think like I think he did it well. I think he carried it off with some dignity and some plausibility yeah. that he he provided a center of gravity in a convoluted Moffat universe. Yeah, and I think I think that's true of so many 
Um, uh, I think what you've just said is true of so many actors, I think, especially, well, actually, actually throughout the history of Doctor Who, is there are people who can turn in a good performance despite the ridiculousness of the things that they're supposed to say <laughs> and do and make you believe that that performance... And, and make you believe that it makes sense. I mean, I think actually, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about it, I mean, ha- having listened to you to, to talk about Rory right now, I, mean, I think what is great about Rory, what's great about Darville's performance is that it's only thinking back do you yes. start to wonder what the hell was going on. But actually, you know, when he is having to do all these pretty implausible... And all the Doctor Who is pretty implausible, but like more implausible <laughs> than usual things. You actually believe it because he, I mean, he's able to sell it really well, including right. like, you know, Amy Pond becoming a supermodel, but then still living in a small house in Surbiton. <laughs> I mean, you know, the whole kind of, again, wish fulfillment thing about Amy and, and Moffat, I think, is kind of the key to her character. Well, the final Moffat male companion, which I, I think Nardole is male in a binary type of gender right. allotment, if we're just doing male, female, um, Nardo would go on the male companion. Certainly the pronouns that they're using for him are him him and he. And oh, they are. All oh, right. The writers are choosing a male pronoun for Nardo. Yeah. And I think as, as, we've, as we've said in our review of the Christmas episode is that originally, certainly from my position, um, I was not excited about Matt Lucas and Nardole joining the TARDIS crew. Right. After the Christmas episode, I'm, I'm actually pretty curious. I'm pretty mm-hmm. intrigued and I'm, I'm excited. I mean, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. excited in general because I like Doctor right. Who. But I'm also like, I'm not like, oh, it's just going to be Matt Lucas like gurning away <laughs> like he's on, you know, Little Britain or something. I'm intrigued to find out what they do with Nardole. Yeah, I rewatched The Husbands um, this weekend. Right. And you would not have guessed that Nardole would have been a returning character. Really? He was, yeah, he was not anyone significant that I thought that would make a return. Yeah. It was comedic, but not in a ha-ha, this is, I can't get enough of this guy. Right. What really sold me on his character was in The Return of Dr. Mysterio and the one scene where he is returning or piloting the TARDIS back and saying uh, his time in Constantinople where he ruled uh, wisely. (laughs) Right, exactly, yeah. 12th century Renaissance, yeah. And so that clicked for me. So I think he has a lot of potential and it'll be an interesting character. Uh, Moffat is billing him as the doctor's butler or valet for the TARDIS. So I like we'll, that. S- we'll see. Yeah, no, I like that. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a good, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a good way to think about it. I think the last time in, in Doctor Who where the Doctor had a, a mysterious butler was um, Scream of the Shalker. And that mysterious butler turned out to be, was, was, was a robot master. So who knows? <laughs> well, we had uh, Frank Skinner in the, yeah, he's more of a gardener, though. I wouldn't. He's more. He's yeah, more an outdoorsman yeah. than a than a. Than, well, than, than he a was more of the the handyman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's not the chauffeur. Yeah, he's more like a. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's he's the chauffeur. He's in the garage. He's polishing the rolls. <laughs> you have to really understand how the English class system works. There's no mm-hmm. way that Frank Skinner would have been allowed upstairs, right. firmly downstairs. And he wasn't, and because he was in the engine room, so to exactly. speak. he was underneath underneath the deck deck plates. Exactly. But Nardole has the unctuousness and the deference, yet the slight Jeeves-ish, I actually know more than you do, touch to him right. that will, makes mm-hmm. him an, a, potentially an excellent valet mm-hmm. to, to the Scottish nobleman who is our current doctor. Yeah, and looking back to uh, Mummy on a Spaceship with uh, 
Mummy on a spaceship. Uh, so, sorry, Mummy on the Orient Express. <laughs> <laughs> mummy on a spaceship is perfect. Uh, well, that's the sequel with Perkins, with Frank Skinner's Perkins. You can kind of exactly. see where the idea that Stephen Moffat probably was toying around with, is there a way that I could bring on Perkins for the right for the TARDIS? You know, a character that kind of lives in the TARDIS and does the maintenance. And you can see that potentially with Nardle, too. The one that mines the TARDIS while the Doctor and now Bill are out. Uh... Fighting Daleks and stuff. Yeah. But we'll see. It's intriguing. I mean, it's as I said, you know, I'm, I, I, I think a new trailer dropped today, which I've been mm-hmm. watching. Um, watched that three or four mm-hmm. times already. But, uh, you know, I think I think everyone's pretty excited about this new yeah. series, as they should be. Well, it's always always exciting to get uh, new episodes of your favorite show. Either, either they're newly produced or newly recovered. It's always an exciting it's, time. It's always an exciting time of year. Just it's crying shame that we again we didn't have any have any last year. Boo, mm-hmm. and also that Capaldi is leaving. Boo as well. Yes, but there yes. you go. Can't be helped. Okay. Cool. Well, I think that brings us very neatly to the end of episode 34, I think, don't you? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Next week, we'll take a look at female companions with an eye on how we think Bill will develop yeah. or what her role will be. Are we, are we going to be able to cover like all of the female companions in one episode of the Metabelis 2 podcast, or are we going to have to do a double episode? Hmm. We'll, we'll see how we go. We'll, we'll see. Yeah. yeah. We'll see how, see how, we see how far we get. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, if you have been, thanks for listening. Yeah. This has been your male companion, Ben. <laughs> and uh, your other male traveling companion, <laughs> David. Ooh, ooh, male companions. That's us. Most of us isn't. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, have a great night. Thanks for listening. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and have a great evening. Have a wonderful evening. Goodbye. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for listening to the Metabilis 2 podcast. You can reach us with email at metabilis2, as a number 2, at gmail.com or on Twitter at metabilis2. And again, that's a number 2. Hope to hear from you. Bye. You do discover a little bit in the Christmas episode and across the course of the series how Nardole was put together again Mm -hmm. and why he's back. He's not just there on a whim. He has a job to do. Uh, and all becomes apparent uh, throughout the series.